and welcome to this Royal Irish Academy podcast on climate and society in Ireland. I'm your host, Jill Plunkett, and this is a series of four podcasts exploring the long view of climate change by interviewing the authors of Climate and Society in Ireland. We talk about hunter-gatherers, disease, poetry, weather events, and consider our future vulnerabilities. Today's podcast features Lucy Collins, Associate Professor in the School of English Drama and Film at University College Dublin. Lucy, you're very welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I'm a lecturer in the School of English in UCD and I work mainly on modern poetry. But a while back, I was lured into doing some more work on earlier uh, periods of English literature. So particularly around the 17th and 18th century, uh, I focus mainly on Irish work, though not exclusively so. Um, So I'm very interested in the connections between texts written in Ireland and those written elsewhere. And when did you first discover an interest in poetry? Well, I suppose I was interested in poetry as a teenager. Um, I I guess that's a time that people often become interested in poetry because it speaks to us personally. Um, But right through my undergraduate degree, I was I really gravitated towards poetry. Again, not just Irish work, but uh, work from all over the world, particularly American uh, poetry, actually, at that stage. And so I did my PhD on poetry and I've never looked back, really. <laughs> I think it was the, the intracert and leaving cert curriculum that probably didn't help me develop an interest. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> some, some poets spoke to me a bit, but I think they drilled it into us so much that it, it almost stifled it. Anyhow, your paper in the Royal Irish Academy volume at takes a view of climate as a cultural phenomenon. Can you elaborate on this a little? Well, I think one of the important things about contemporary climate debates is that, you know, we're obviously very reliant on the science and on uh, contemporary scientific thinking. But we can sometimes overlook the importance of culture and of art in particular in mediating how we understand climate and indeed how we understand the the natural world more broadly. Um, And also in how we reach a wider range of people um, in terms of how we can connect imaginatively uh, with people and get them to think more, reflect more on human, the human place in the world and our responsibilities towards a non-human world. So very often we think of culture as in some way secondary, I suppose, to to the scientific inquiry. But I'd argue that it's in fact a really important um, companion to other forms of, of inquiry intellectually. Yeah, I'd say that I've possibly picked up, and correct me if, if I've picked this up wrong, that in a way, looking at the literature helps us to realise the the personal impact, and maybe to some extent the subjectivity of climate impacts on populations. Because when we look at the past, in particular, thinking from, from my perspective as a paleoecologist, we often grossly generalise. But in fact, impacts play out on a very personal level as well. Yes, they do, um, on a personal level and on the level of, of human community. And I think one of the wonderful things and important things that literature can do in particular is, first of all, it can use language in a very sensitive way um, that you know reaches into the interior lives of people and renders those lives and responses, I think, in, in, in ways that can affect us, that can move us, um, and that can certainly change our thinking. But I think the other 
thing um, literature does that's very important is that it engages with human connection. So it thinks about how communities um, respond to their environment uh, and how they might work together to to change and evolve uh, the way in which they they live in the world. Uh, and so literature is very important, I think, in addressing those issues in different forms, in, in different genres and different modes throughout the years. If we could take that back to the earliest literature that you consider, you mentioned at one point that in what was essentially the early, early modern period representations of the natural world, that that to some extent these were shaped by group identities, whether these were between Gaelic Irish, Old English, New, New English, or later on along Catholic Protestant lines. Does this come across in considerations of weather phenomena? Yes, it does. Um, it, it comes across a, a number of different and sometimes contradictory ways, actually, because if we go back to uh, writings that engaged with um, Irish landscapes and the experience of being in the Irish landscape, um, from the period of um, settlement in Ireland, you're going back to, say, looking at a, a, a writer like Spencer, for example. And you'll find uh, a number of writers really keen to portray Ireland as uh, a land that was temperate and that was um, rich and fertile and therefore would be attractive to somebody coming to settle there. So it was in a way um, using the the beauties and the resources of Ireland as an encouragement um, to English settlers and Scottish settlers to make their homes here. But in a contrary way, and at particular political moments in that in that period, there was also a desire to see Ireland as other, you know, as different from England in terms of its natural resources, uh, in terms of its its weather and its its landscape and, and that potential. And so you get this contradiction there uh, between the desire sometimes to portray Ireland as this almost Edenic uh, land and then in another way to see it as as wild, as, you know, unclaimed and potentially as dangerous. And that was very often rendered in terms of weather imagery, because that kind of imagery was something that was universal, you know, that everyone could understand and identify with and was also experiential. So many people could understand what it felt like to to be in a storm or, you know, to to experience extreme weather. Uh, and so it was something that was very useful to writers at the time who wanted to communicate those experiences. You, me- you mentioned the storms and the extreme weather there. I had the sense that most of the weather that was talked about was effectively storms. So you can imagine that the, the force of storms, the power of storms would make a huge impression, and they still do today. Um, but also the the extremes of cold, um, which can completely change a landscape, completely change it to make it into a beautiful landscape, but also into a very treacherous landscape. Um, what about more clement weather or droughts? Do they feature? 
There, yes, there is attention to droughts, actually. But in terms of the more clement weather, um, there's a long tradition, obviously, of writing about um, the, the natural world and landscape in ways that emphasise its beauty and the pleasure uh, of landscape. And those traditions, which are drawn in by Irish writers and used in particular ways, uh, very often use ideas, particularly of the passage of the seasons, uh, as a way of both reflecting on human life, human place in the world, perhaps uh, with engagement with the divine, um, but in a way that is certainly reassuring, you know, that speaks to pleasure, that speaks to ideas of order, that everything being in its right place, everything proceeding uh, as planned, as it were. But in the case of extreme weather, of course, um, it's the opposite effect. It's that sense that something out of the normal human order is happening, something that can't be fully explained or understood and something that has a, a significant impact on, on human life uh, in various ways. Now, as you can imagine, in terms of if we look at the poetry, for example, uh, we can see pastoral poetry as drawing more more commonly on those temperate uh, and pleasant representations of weather. Uh, the more dramatic poetry um, that seeks to, I suppose, to almost create theatre out of um, out of weather events, draws more fully on uh, ideas of extreme weather and their impact. And. Do you have a sense that they're you, you mentioned that they pick up on extreme events and that something out of the ordinary is happening? Do you, do you have a sense whether these that there is a a long term perspective on this that they're seeing more extreme events through time or they're noticing changes because even within the context of our own lifetimes, um, when when we've gathered enough decades, we start to think, oh, when I was young, it used to be, you know, different to today. Can you pick that up in the poetry, either in terms of what's happening within the poet's lifetimes or their awareness of what it used to be like further back in time? I think um, on a relatively small scale, there is certainly evidence that writers, not just poets, but other writers in the early modern period are reflecting on those patterns. And in some cases, um, that in itself marks a be, uh, an early interest in the notion of observing weather, in noting down, in reflecting and recording uh, particular weather patterns. And so, um, and this is, of course, a, an aspect of the natural world that is probably kind of most amenable to that kind of recording because we can all, um, you know, stand outside and, and record uh, our own sense and observation about what's happening with the weather. And in many ways, this was also a a, a form of observation that was quite democratic in the sense that it was something that anyone could participate in. And so, during the period, I mean, quite a, an extended period, even before you get uh, any kind of clear sense of of um, scientific observation of weather, you do get the kind of layman's observation where you get people in letters and diaries, for example, uh, recording particular seasonal changes or noting a run of, of bad weather or a number of years in which harvests were poor and so on. And very often these observations are, you know, directly affect the uh, the well-being of the, the writer or their family. So in the case of 
of um, of poor harvests, for example, of you know floods or or other weather events that would have considerable impact on uh, on a family or community. It's recorded for that uh, for that reason. Um, another interesting set of records you'll find is people who were. Um, Traveling across the Irish Sea, and there was, of course, um, because of Ireland's colonial history, you have a, a great deal of uh, of travel um, between the two lands. And of course, storms at sea were particularly prevalent and very dangerous. Of course, um, owing to the the nature of uh, of of shipping and sailing at the time, and so therefore that was something that. Um, that writers often dwelled on or often recorded in their writings. And so in that sense, we can construct this sort of anecdotal sense of larger patterns of weather. Perhaps across the lifetime, you'll often find an older writer dwelling on this and maybe comparing to uh, their childhood experiences. But I don't think we can claim that there was a really concerted sense of the much longer historical view of weather. I think that sense really comes in more profoundly when we do have the development of scientific thinking and we do begin to understand that weather events are neither arbitrary, you know, neither completely inexplicable, nor are they caused by divine intervention or by supernatural forces, but they're actually subject to particular natural laws and particular concurrences in the natural world. And I think once that understanding uh, is established, then we get a much, much greater scrutiny of the, the long history of weather. Okay, so the you're seeing a shift in literature from different periods in how weather was being interpreted, the forces behind it. Yes, exactly. And of course, these are also inflected by politics as well. Uh, because, I mean, first of all, you have, as I mentioned there, the, you know, the issue of superstitious belief or the belief that weather was um, reflective of, of in, in the case of extreme weather events, of God's displeasure. That was a very prevalent uh, uh, position and indeed persisted even after we have, you know, quite a body of scientific thinking on weather and climate events gathered. You know, you still have that that sense, that persistent sense that there is a higher power to be invoked um, in relation to, to climate and weather events. Um, but there's also the sense that the politics of the time uh, very much affects how weather is used in in uh, poetry specifically or in other forms of, of literary writing. And that is because if we think about the way in which weather imagery is used in poetry, for example, it's very often used metaphorically, so symbolically. It's used to convey a particular set of feelings or effects and to produce that in the reader. Uh, and it's also used, of course, to convey larger ideas of, of power, uh, of in particular, that sense of human vulnerability, it's very often conveyed through that kind of imagery. And this is impacted a great deal by political events. So in the Irish case, of course, you have uh, periods of considerable violence, upheaval and turmoil um, politically. Uh, you know, if you think of the period of Cromwell, for example, and extended periods where Ireland has been in, in a turbulent state politically. And 
you sometimes have uh, writers seeking to indicate their fears around that turbulence and their anxieties about the future uh, by using the imagery of weather. So in a sense, it enables them to to write a political poem without appearing to write a political poem. Um, So they can invoke uh, ideas of of fear um, or Conversely, they can even try to promote the idea of peace and stability in the face of what they might be witnessing. So you get some interesting examples if we uh, moved forward to the the later uh, part of the period we're talking about, if we would skip forward to 1798, for example, we would find some poets writing um, about, you know, specifically idyllic and peaceful landscapes being portrayed very deliberately to counter the kinds of fears that were emerging politically. So the way in which weather imagery can be used um, to create an impression uh, in the reader um, that is actually quite different from the reality uh, is an interesting one too. So it's almost like a type of propaganda. Yes, or or perhaps even a wish fulfilment, uh, you know, in some cases, um, you know, that sense that people wish for a particular state of affairs, either philosophically or politically. Uh, and so they use that imagery as a way of conveying that worldview in their work. Yeah. yeah. I thought it was interesting that you did make that link between climate representation and politics, because it got me wondering, and I didn't dig deep into it, uh, to what extent was the political scene influenced by the climate at the time? Or to what extent might people's awareness of the climate, particularly if it wasn't pleasant climate, have been heightened by the fact that everything else around them seemed to be all doom and gloom? Yeah, there's an there's a couple of interesting sort of instances of that. Uh, I mean, most certainly, if we if we even think of the the contemporary moment, we can see how climate change has a huge impact on world politics. So you think of of the migrant crisis, for example, um, being in in some measure obviously precipitated by by war and violence and political upheaval, but that political upheaval in turn uh, is very influenced by weather events and by climate change and and changing access to resources and land use. And the very same is true if we go back to the early modern period uh, in Ireland. So you can imagine that in a situation of turmoil, in a situation of either changing, a changing political situation where you get, for example, changing land ownership, you get more people being put off their land for example, so um, a greater level of indigence, a great le- greater level of um, you know marginal communities only barely able to um, to survive, and if you add to that then a particular like a, a couple of failed harvests, uh, that precipitates a significant social um, change and deprivation. Uh, it's it's enough to kind of as it were tip a society over the edge, and then in turn to precipitate unrest and uh, and violence. And, uh, you know, an interesting example of this is um, a period that I I look at in my paper, which is around uh, the time of the Great Frost from 1739 to 41. And there you have, you know, very extreme cold, very and a very extreme weather event in a in a larger period of a longer period of time where there was, you know, termed the Little Ice Age, where there were, you know, repeated um, weather challenges. Uh, And in this case, 
the extremity had a number of different effects. I mean, it had, you know, very severe effects. I mean, immediate effects on the population in terms of um, the death of, of both humans and animals, the failure of harvests and so on. But it's really interesting the way if we look at a whole you know, suite of poems that came out of that period, uh, we see that some poets chose to um, aestheticize that experience. So there's a poet by uh, Thomas Delamain, for example, where he actually addresses the, the event and the landscape as though it's a painting. You know, and he and he describes it in those in terms of great beauty, uh, a kind of sublime beauty, really, in a sense, before its time, um, in the sense that it invokes a certain sense of threat or fear, but it nonetheless does so in a way that emphasizes beauty. Uh, but if you were to contrast that poem um, with work by a poet like uh, Lawrence White, uh, who wrote a poem called Famine, which not only directly addresses the very severe um, impact of those those uh, disastrous years in terms of ongoing famine in Ireland, and of course, not only the death and deprivation that that resulted in, but the upheaval socially that it resulted in. Um, but in in Lawrence White's case, he is also linking that climate event very specifically to. An unjust social system, you know, to uh, landowners who mismanage their land, to um, a lack of charity um, directed towards um, people who are struggling to to stay alive. Um, in particular, he focuses around the price of bread as this this kind of emblematic. Um, situation of injustice and uh, that the poor were not able to survive because of it. And, and there you see like two very different responses, one very political uh, and one much more artistic, if you like, to the same extreme climate event. Yeah, but and at the same time, highlighting that different classes or even people living, you know, in urban areas versus rural areas will have experienced these, um, these issues, these extreme events quite differently. Yes, that's that's absolutely true. And in fact, it's very true, you know, if you look at the, the larger period from, you know, right up to the Romantic period. So we're going into the early part of the 19th century, the the sense and it's, it's something actually that um, communicates itself very powerfully. If you're reading poetry of the period that engages with any aspect of of environment and the natural world is the extent to which experiences were very, very specific to particular parts of the country to obviously very shaped by class and privilege. Um, and so, you know, the, the sense of the unevenness of experience, I think, comes through very strongly um, in the poems. And it's also important, I suppose, to think about as we move through this period, we do have a sense in which the ability to write and to have work published and read um, becomes becomes wider, you know, so a, a greater range of human experience begins to become available um, over the course of the period. And therefore, you have a sense that people who were, for example, of the labouring classes, you know, who were engaged in directly and in many cases um, impacted more 
more kind of viscerally and immediately uh, by climate change and bad weather. Uh, they were able to write about that experience and record that experience and have others read and understand it. And, and so in that way, I think we get, you know, through these, these works, not just the poems, but through other forms of writing, we get a really wide range of representation um, on climate. And that, of course, in a sense, goes back to that question of the importance of capturing these texts and of reading these texts now, because they give us the sort of greatest possible view of the actual experience of climate at the time. And with respect to the 1739 frost, I think possibly the the quote I enjoyed most in your piece was the one from the anonymous writer um, who was critiquing the standards of weather forecasting at the time. So that was very interesting because they were referring to the fact that there were attempts, and I hadn't realised that there were attempts to predict what the, the, the weather would be. Oh yes, I mean the whole the whole issue of weather prediction was was big business, as it were, in the sense that it had such a huge impact on prosperity because of you know agricultural life and the prominence of agricultural life to the Irish economy, and so the the desire to predict uh, weather was uh, people were very attuned to that the the role of the almanac and so on in, in setting out. Um, these this information and how that information about weather continued to be important well beyond this period. So the significance of it, I think, is is very important. Um, but certainly, there's in fact many poems that didn't make it into my uh, my paper. There's a lot of poems that draw in quite witty ways on weather and and weather experiences, you know, in in much more kind of light hearted ways, I suppose, about that sense of really because weather had such an impact on everyone's life. Uh, and so it spoke to everyone's experience in different ways. And so like there's a, a very touching poem, in fact, that um that is, it doesn't have a have a central role in my my piece, but it's about um a man, you know, mourning the loss of a crop of peas um due to a storm. Uh, and that sort of sense of like this is the experience of of every gardener, you know, who goes out in after a night of bad weather and sees everything destroyed, you know. Um, so it's a universal experience. Yeah, I read that one and I thought I can identify with that one. <laughs> yeah. And and that's the that's the fascinating thing about so many of these poems is that even though in terms of language and style, you know, they're very much of their time, but they speak to really universal experiences too. You know, I think that and and that's the interesting thing about our response to weather and climate is that you know it has we can connect back in history um, to those earlier responses and really understand them, I think. So nature and our relationship to nature um, features strongly in uh, romanticism, but but also, obviously, from your work, it, it features strongly at other times as well. Would you be able to say whether the interest in weather-related phenomena is equal to other aspects of the natural world or greater than or less than? Well, it's an interesting question because I'd say that weather uh, is because it it affects all aspects of environment and landscape and, you know, the world of animals and so on and the, the life at sea and all of those things. And um, so weather in some ways is the thing that connects it all together, you know, uh, and has that that capacity to appear uh, in very different kinds of works and, you know, with, with that might otherwise have quite a different focus. Some preoccupation of weather uh, will 
emerge. The interesting thing about the Romantic period is that if we think about you know, if we think about eco-criticism now and we think about people reflecting on the importance of the representation of nature in literary works, a lot of the interest uh, from that first stemmed from the study of the Romantic period because there was a sense in which those particular poets and, you know, particularly turning to people like Wordsworth being the most obvious example, perhaps and Coleridge, those major figures in, in Romanticism, which is, of course, a much a very different and expanding field um, now in terms of what it encompasses. But if we go back to those figures, um, we see the centrality of that connection to weather uh, and to climate um, in all their thinking, you know, so whether they were thinking philosophically or politically, whether they were thinking about their own subjective experience, their own inner life, images of weather impacted on all those um, representations. But when we dig a little deeper, we find that this, the seeds or the origins, I suppose, of that kind of thinking, um, uh, and by that I mean that engagement with weather and the natural world as something which had um, uh, an emotional significance, you know, that was significant to the individual person and their subjective life, uh, their inner life and their thoughts and feelings, but also um, the idea that nature was... Um, tied up with ethical questions and, and moral debates really about man's place in the world, man's responsibility to the non-human world, particularly the animal world and so on. Um, but the origins of that thinking are are a lot earlier. So if we were to go back much further, for example, to um, the mid 18th century to the 1730s or so, um, we see an increasing preoccupation on the part of poets and writers about the idea of landscape and nature as engendering feeling, as provoking um, emotion in the viewer um, or the person experiencing it, and that that emotion has a moral quality to it. And we see this particularly in the representation of animal life in that period. And that's another area of representation that is very important in our engagement with the natural world. And that is that uh, writers and poets began to think of animals not as, you know, just instrumental, um, not just as a means to, you know, the horse to carry them around, the, you know, the cow to uh, provide milk or whatever. They weren't just there for resources. They were part of a much more complex and kind of interwoven um, understanding of natural life and non-human life. And uh, that provoked all kinds of responses. And very often the poem as a space is a really important space for that kind of reflection. Um, and so we see everything in this period from engagement with, with agricultural animals um, and like a forging of an almost kind of personal relationship um, with those creatures. Uh, we see increasing engagement with ideas of um of pets, of um, of hunting, a lot of interrogation of of blood sports and their you know their dubious morality, um, and all of these questions I think we can see as having a huge impact on the overall sense in in how humans begin to rethink their place in the world and their their primacy. If you like, they begin to see it as having clear responsibilities, and it's from that sense of responsibility that I suppose the the sense that the human is not 
in charge of everything in the universe. You know, the the, the human uh, has to negotiate uh, his or her place there. And so in that sense, I think we see a number of different elements of the representation of nature as, in a sense, coming together um, in the 18th century in particular to, to change the way we think about the natural world. I find that absolutely fascinating because, I, I mean, I project further back into the past and... When, when we don't have the range of resources available to us that we do in more modern periods. And it makes me wonder to what extent were perceptions, views changing because of the rate of change, societal change in the past few centuries? Or if, if we go further back in time, OK, we may not have been scientifically advanced. There were times when we were actually more scientifically advanced and then regressed. Uh, but But how were people's perceptions and their interactions different in the past? And can we extrapolate from the present or the recent past um, in, when we try to understand what, how people saw themselves in their world? That's not necessarily a question you can answer, but do you have any thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, I think it is, um, it is risky to read back. I mean, we can certainly see parallels, really interesting parallels between things we're reflecting on and debating now and that they were reflected on if you go back to, you know, the 1500s or something, that you can actually see evidence of some preoccupation and reflection there. But I think we do need to be cautious about reading backwards and imputing a sense of, you know, that larger sort of sense, particularly of issues of climate change and particularly that kind of global perspective. And, you know, I think, you know, we have obviously ways of communicating and understanding the world that are very different uh, from our, our predecessors. But that doesn't mean that some of the instincts, I suppose, around that connectivity uh, that we experience so uh, so dramatically now, I think the instincts are there, um, but they're not, you know, the, I suppose the knowledge that would enable people to think through the ramifications of it, you know, clearly, um, clearly weren't there. But if we think about, you know, I mean, a classic case would be instances in which a global climate event uh, has impact beyond its its particular local um uh, environment and in the period i'm looking at obviously the you know the the issue of um the eruption of tambora you know was the sort of classic one the year without the summer you know that whole idea that and this is we're talking about 1816 now um that idea that uh, communities very far removed, you know, thousands of miles away from the actual uh, natural event, if you like, um, experienced the the impact of it. Um, but obviously, because of the way communications work, it took some time for that to be realised, you know, that people were observing certain things, but the connection couldn't yet at that time be made with this particular event. And so I think if we go back to much earlier periods, what we see is something of a time lag, I suppose, between things that people are observing or noting. And then sometimes it's only later generations that are able to look back and piece those elements together 
together and see that, you know, how we can connect this reflection in a poem with that diary observation, with this particular uh, climate impact, you know, in terms of, a, you know, particularly uh, poor cycle of weather or something like this. And so I think um, it is interesting. What's most interesting to me, you know, as a literary scholar, I suppose, is the way in which we can use literary uh, texts and sources as resources, you know, not just to find things out, you know, or not just to confirm events that we can find out by other means, by scientific means or by, you know, um, historical documentation or whatever, but that we can actually um, flesh out and expand and extend the whole experience and perspectives, you know, differing perspectives on those um, on those events. And so it's really only to, to sort of to answer your your unanswerable question, I suppose, um, you know, it's really only um, it's like e- each of the each different discipline has, you know, a key to the overall understanding. And it's a matter of bringing those elements together. It's a matter of connecting up and um, the knowledge. And that often happens, you know, retrospectively. Yeah. With respect to the Tambora eruption, um, it is widely cited that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was to some extent shaped by her experiences of a bad summer um, on the while she was staying by Lake Geneva in 1816. Uh, but that idea has recently been challenged, That, it, it, but it has been suggested that, yes, she will have seen, you know, typical continental um, summer storms and that these will have fired her imagination, but that it wasn't necessarily ultimately linked to the eruption. Have you come across the the challenge to the common notion? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it sort of speaks to a larger question, I suppose, in literary study generally of the difficulty of pinning down particular influences and inspiration, you know. Um, and in many respects, you know, even the writer themselves can't be trusted in terms of how they identify, a, you know, a particular um, train of thought or an event that that influenced the way they write. Because, you know, I think it's it's probably more productive to see a, no, a confluence of a whole range of um, um, of events and experiences coming together in some kind of balance or sparking off one another in a way. And I think, you know, it's been in some ways, you know, satisfying for critics when, you know, if they encounter the the comments that um, that Mary Shelley made about the experience and the sort of, you know, the strange extremity of the weather and then link, linking that to the the extremity of uh, the experiences that that find their way into her work. So it's a kind of, in some ways, a, a, a neat and perhaps too neat parallel. Um, but I do think that when we take all these elements together, I think they do have a um, an important impact. And it's actually quite interesting because it's something that sometimes, um, and I hesitate to say this because I, it's a dangerous generalisation, but um, it can have a, a gendered element where certainly in my experience of um, working with poems and texts across this period, I've often found that women poets and writers are more attuned to drawing these different elements together. So drawing together, say, um, an experience of weather with something that may be happening domestic 
domestically, um, both in their own immediate space or perhaps in the wider space of the community. Um, and then perhaps some, you know, larger philosophical or political point. And women writers are very often deft at drawing together those elements, which is perhaps, I think, um, linked to the way in which because women tended to be by either by determination or by choice, uh, they tended to occupy a more private space um, than, than male writers. And therefore, they were more apt to see these larger patterns, perhaps through a, a personal or, you know, familial or domestic lens. Um, and an interesting example of this um, that I, I mentioned in my paper is the, a very interesting poet called Olivia Elder, a northern poet, so an Ulster poet. Uh, and she was constant. She was a very interesting figure, not published at all during her lifetime, but her, her manuscripts were retained and, and rediscovered and, and published more recently. But she very often dwells on the relationship between her immediate environment. So whether she's like doing farm work or, you know, washing the dishes and things she's observing in her community and beyond. So the example that, that I particularly draw on from her is that example of pathetic fallacy, you know, which is the idea that, you know, the weather, say, is reflecting the inner life, is reflecting the emotions of the speaker. Um, but it's interesting that in Elder's case, she sort of, uh, you know, reports this sort of rather doom laden or dark sense um, in, in her wider community uh, and how she has internalised it, you know, in her own mood, if you like. So there's like a, a sort of a two way movement between what the individual poet might project onto her environment or um, or her her landscape and what she's kind of drawing from that landscape. And of course, in that case, um, you're looking at uh, a poet who engages very much with issues of religion. She writes a lot about about uh, her Presbyterian um, community and that sense in which the different worldview, sort of religious in terms of religion or in terms of philosophy that a poet might have, might have a huge impact on how they how they render that environment and the kinds of language and imagery they choose to use. Yes, I hadn't heard of her, but I made it now. I thought I must check her out. It sounded intriguing. I was very interested in the title of your paper. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, the, yeah, that quotation, Nature Herself is in the, in the papers now, is, uh, it's a really interesting, it's a form of, of representation of nature, personification of nature, um, in a sense, that we find in quite a lot of poetry of, you know, particularly of the, uh, the late 17th and, and early 18th century. And it is that idea that nature in a personified form is under threat, you know, or is um, in a state of kind of dissolution. Um, and so in that way, uh, a response to particular uh, climate events or particular extreme weather is seen as an upheaval of the whole concept of nature. And this goes back to um, something I mentioned earlier about the uh, the idea of the pastoral and the drawing on on seasonal 
uh, representation in poetry of the time and the way in which that uh, differentiates the notion of nature as this benevolent force. Um, so this uh, a force that usually feminized, of course, that um, is taking care of man, that is kind of embracing man and supporting man. Um, and that when that goes wrong, um, then as it were, nature turns against man and, you know, creates these terrible events, you know, these storms, these famines um, that then require man to question his place in the world and then very specifically to question his own wrongdoing or his own attitudes and how he might need to change those. Um, so I was interested in that particular quote because it does uh, personify nature in a particular way that we often find in in that period and which, you know, we tend to think of as quite old fashioned now, but was very powerful in, in terms of how it featured in poetry at the time. Very good. Finally, Lucy, I'd like to ask you what for you, stands out as the most striking feature of climate representation in early modern literature. Well, that's a very difficult question because um, because it's so varied, it's so rich and and varied. I think the thing that stands out most for me is the um, the ways in which writers wanted to extend their engagement with particular forms of writing. So whether it's writing for theatre or it's it's poetry, for example, um, they wanted to extend the way they wrote to represent their environment and their engagement with nature in the fullest and most interesting way. So, you know, right through the period, you get an inevitable kind of contest, I suppose, between writers drawing on very established traditional forms. So drawing on forms of writing that really they inherited, you know, they found in the library, as it were, rather than out of doors. Um, and these were inherited forms. And, it, you know, if we look at some Irish poetry of the period, we see very clear parallels to other English poets. And, you know, we think, well, what what is different about this? Um, so there's always that dimension of environmental poetries and poetry about climate and weather that's there. But the thing that struck me most um, in digging through this poetry was, uh, in fact, how idiosyncratic um, the voices are and the ways in which poets really tried to do something new um, and innovative with those forms. And you find everything from, say, you know, um, working poets, labouring poets, writing about their own experiences out in the land um, in in very direct um, kind of language, really interesting, very unpoetic language. Um, we find for example, poets using um, form to essentially write essays on scientific elements. So, you know, I'm thinking, for example, of uh, Richard Barton's poem, The Physico-Poetical Essay, it's called. And it is just that, like it's a, it's basically a, an essay or a lecture on geology, you know, in poetic form. And so this idea that writers were really innovative in, in their responses to the environment and were using literary forms as a way of thinking through that response or that relationship. And I think it was that element, perhaps more than any other, 
which made me convinced of the value of looking at literary texts from this period as an illuminating of climate issues, because it does show that the actual form in which the poets are writing or the the writers are uh, producing these texts um, helps to kind of stretch their imagination, helps to them to think in new ways. And that's been really, I suppose, the pleasure of working with these texts is, is that sense of opening up a world of, of newness and innovation. That and, and texts that seem new even now, you know, they seem innovative even now in the 21st century. Lucy Collins, it's been fabulous talking to you about your work. Many thanks for joining me in this podcast. Thank you for having me. Climate and Society in Ireland is available from the Royal Irish Academy and in all good bookshops. Thank you for listening. <laughs>